I'm Jerry Richardson. Uh, I am a psychiatrist, trained as an internist, uh, saw that as an internist I needed to do a lot of psychiatry, went back and trained in psychiatry and it stuck. Uh, missionary kid, grew up in Nigeria. Uh, and the last couple of years I've talked here about burnout. And so I guess the program committee said, all right, enough is enough. What can you do about it? So what they challenged me with, the, the task they gave me, was to talk about uh, self-care. This is a similar talk to what I gave to medical missionaries in Greece at our CMDE conference this last May, I think it was. Uh, and uh, it was well received there, so at least you can know that part of what I say was endorsed by people who are actually doing this stuff now. Um, but I plan to talk hopefully for 30 minutes, maybe a little more, and then have uh, plenty of time for discussion. So we have to submit an abstract, and something is not right with the sound here. I don't know if I'm too loud or too near the speaker's. Is that better? I was, I was hearing myself too much. So the focus is going to be on if you are a medical missions person, nurse, nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, physician, other, you will likely be called on to provide mental health care for your colleagues. In most places, if you're the doc, you're the doc for whatever walks down, walks in the door. So one set of challenges is that. That is, not only must you care for yourself mentally and emotionally, but you're going to be asked to care for others, colleagues especially. So what I'm going to focus on mostly are some things to do, the rationale and then things to do for self-care. None of this is unique to medical missions, uh, just like most of Christian walk and Christian life is not unique to missions. It just happens to be in a somewhat different context. So again, objectives that I submitted needed to describe the main source of challenge to mental health, which is sort of the pre-burnout information, and then describe at least three, I hope to talk about five strategies to improve mental and emotional self-care. So, objective one. The first strategy is to know the source of the challenge. Um, and if you haven't read the literature, I'll review what literature there is very briefly. But for missionaries, uh, the best research available, some was done 20 years ago, some was done three or four years ago, and some was done in the last couple of years. One of the most quoted sources of missionary stress papers was in the 70s by Dorothy Gish, at which time she ranked, missionaries ranked to her, the number one stressor was other, other mission, number two was other missionaries, number one was confronting people. Now, I know Christians are really good at being able to confront effectively, appropriately, safely, soundly, without hurting anybody's feelings. But if you're not one of those, that's a skill you have to learn. So that's the list that uh, Dorothy put together 
based on her research with missionaries. Uh, Marjorie Foyle, who did research uh, in the 90s and published it in the 20s, uh, had a career as a medical missionary, a career being involved in a psychiatric hospital, retired, and her third career was serving the mental and emotional needs of missionaries traveling all over the world. Just If you don't know Marjorie Foyle, Google her and read her books. Um, she has an accumulation of wisdom that uh, few people have. But when she did the numbers, the survey that she did, she ended up publishing this, getting her Ph.D. at age 70-something, uh, or 80. Anyway, she never slowed down. Number one, had moved up to occupational stress rather than conflict. Still high up there were the things that one would expect, but these are defined a little more clearly than the general categories that we'd known before. And of the occupational stress, the work itself was... um, teased out a little more, and it was overload, technical problems, and professional isolation, sources of medical missionary, sources of missionary stress in general, medical missionaries as well. Working conditions, uh, working relationships, they don't mention conflict, but that's often the issue, and with both with national and expat uh, leadership as well as colleagues. Leadership is often a source of stress, and those who serve under leaders are often sources of stress to leaders. So everybody's getting it, and it's a matter of how does it sort itself out effectively. The other things that Marjorie Foyle found is that dual-career families are obviously much more common in this generation, and that was a significant source of stress, as well as the role of the spouse, uh, most, most often the non-medical spouse, was a woman, but it's not always the case. Singleness was a big issue as well as the ones that have been around a long time. The fact that there's temporary home leave now, there's a a good discussion that most people who do missions need to figure out for themselves is, am I better off going home three months out of every two years or one year out of every four? And there are pros and cons of each one. I won't get into that now, but that is something most people can negotiate with their sending agency to find out what works best for them. Marjorie confirmed that the highest risk of major depression among missionaries was a family history or prior personal history of depression. And those without those risk factors usually had, quote, adjustment disorder depressions, which needed to be dealt with more as adjustment disorders. And, of course, burnout is the first cousin of these. It's not identical, but the first cousin. PRISM is something the CMDE, uh, Christian Medical and Dental Association, Continuing Medical and Dental Education Commission, research done a few years ago, surveys from the missionaries who attended our conferences. And some of you have heard this before. We've tried to get it out there. But basically, the the main challenges for medical missions work were fairly well defined. And these were medical missionaries 
most of them with more than five years' experience. So it wasn't newbies, first-termers. Uh, it was people who had been in the trenches for a while. The same challenge is not enough qualified workers, poor cooperation bureaucracies, not enough money or equipment. Uh, I'm going to upload this onto the site um, so you can have the slides once I get them uploaded. Lack of strategy to guide medical mission work. There are many, many mission, medical missionaries believe that their sending organization doesn't have a strategy that includes them long term. Now, among that surveyed group, uh, I forget the total number was about 400 medical and dental missionaries, uh, at least half endorsed a significant level of anxiety that they experienced during their missions career. Enough so that they decided to put it down on a survey as something that had a significant effect on them. Depression was not quite as common as anxiety. That's the general epidemiology of mental health problems anyway. Anxiety more, depression a little bit less. Again, we didn't get enough questions on this survey for mental health to parse it out a great deal. But basically, a significant level of missionaries who had acknowledged having had significant depression during their careers. The other things that were somewhat unique to cross-cultural medical workers that were identified were obviously changing practice when resources are limited. Uh, many of you have had this experience. My experience going to fill in at the hospital where I was born is I lost more patients in the first week than I had in, in my entire residency. And that's an adjustment to make. Uh, and it's something that most of us aren't well prepared for. Uh, the systems are different. Uh, I was used to doing my own labs, but I didn't even have a lab I could get to to do my own labs. And, of course, different human support systems. Number, the last two are really important that I think are underrated in terms of their stressor. And that is you will be the, care provi the medical care provider for other missionaries. And in, a, in an intense situation, that's a very intense role to have. And it's a very specific skill to have because you may have to make tough decisions like I really do think we can't take care of this and you should go home. And people often are kicking and screaming with their fingernails on the floor to get that done. The other thing is you may be the primary provider for your family, which is something we're all taught not to do if we can possibly avoid it. Um, and... There are circumstances where a person has been primarily provided for their family member and their family member did not make it. Don't have to elaborate on that very much. The other important cognitive strategy besides knowing sources of stress for burnout is knowing the consequences. And I won't belabor this very much, but there's plenty of evidence about the consequences. And this is one that's fairly clear that the medical profession ignores. Physicians who are neither fatigued or distressed provide safer patient care and are less likely to injure themselves. Now, we're saying the obvious, but even in our own shop, I know now our residents have less difficult workloads, but the consulting staff has no limits. Uh, 
and we don't manage ourselves any better than we did before. Uh, everybody not only knew this cognitively, but had seen it studied. And the consequences are in every domain of life. They don't just hit the psychological and social, but the spiritual and, and uh, physical. So, that's the preliminary which you've probably heard before. The question is, what to do? What to do to prevent, manage, prepare for, reduce your risk of uh, becoming relatively useless because you burn out? I frame it that way because I think that's an important concept for us to get through our heads. Uh, if we become unhealthy, we're, we become less and less useful in terms of fulfilling the call we have. The difficulties I know are there. Uh, we, I was at a conference, I think this, this summer, of mission leaders where we talked about this problem of you have someone who goes to a, a hospital, begins working at a hospital, and it may not be very long before they and people around them start to run out of gas and start to burn out. And the tension is, well, how do we say no? How do you say no? Fortunately, there happened to be a mission leader who was a physician who was there who had an example of taking over a hospital and saying no. That is saying we can't do it all. We will set limits on what we'll ask our staff to do. We will give our staff a half day off a week so that they can, in fact, stay healthy. And the outcome was staff that persevered longer and took care of more people longer than never, ever setting limits. Now, that's another discussion, but I challenge you to think about that because it's a reality. Know some personal strategies for managing being overwhelmed, overburdened, moving to the edge of your margins. I think I've mentioned before in other talks that Marjorie Foyle, again, we go to the Mental Health and Missions Conference uh, regularly, and she's often there speaking. And uh, one time we were sitting at dinner, and I asked Marjorie, so how do you do this? You're 78 or 80, and how do you keep going? And she said, holidays. You must have holidays. And that's a critical, important point. Uh, if we don't plan in the fact that we're humans, we will end up doing what humans do who don't take care of themselves. So that's a critical thing. Remember that we're human. Act like it. God created us to be human, not superhuman, even though a lot of us have been trained to think we are superhuman. The other things that we're up against are all these kind of phrases that are thrown out there you know, a doctor is a good person. The meaning of being a physician can only be recovered through discovery, meaning of life itself. All these things that are very true, but don't give us any strategies to sort of help do what to do. Tate Shanafelt, who's a colleague who has done a lot of work on burnout, uh, in one of the articles he wrote, talks about these four or five areas of strategy that are really important to rediscover who we are if we've lost who we are in our profession and to um, do something about it. And I'll elaborate on these a little bit uh, in a few minutes. Relationships, 
religious belief, spiritual practices, self-care practices, and a life philosophy, as well as a balance between personal profession, personal and professional lives. The topic of uh, work-life balance is a total different topic that um, is worth everybody thinking about. And I think I've mentioned before in my burnout talks that the idea of work-life balance is a crazy-making idea. I can say that. Uh, it means that we're supposed to walk the I-beam like Nadia Comaneci did perfectly to have a perfect work-life balance. Well, talk about a stressful situation. Trying to have a perfect work-life balance becomes stressful. And the whole idea of that needs to be reevaluated. And I'm glad to talk to you about that another time. But that's, that's one of the things that's out there that people talk about that I think needs to be re-examined. Because there are going to be times, you all know that if you're in medicine or dentistry, there are times when you're up to here, sometimes for a long time. But if you don't stop the drowning for periods of time, you're going to drown. And that's not necessarily a balance. It's an ebb and flow. It's a homeostatic process. But not trying to keep a perfect work-life balance all the time because it can't be done. Now, in terms of practical strategies... Uh, I got permission from Ron and Bonnie Koteski, who've done a huge amount of good work putting literature out for missions and self-care. This website, again, will be on the on these slides, which get posted on the website. Uh, they have a site for people working in sensitive areas. They're ahead of the curve. And they have a site for people who are in open areas. Because obviously there are some things that you can't click on and get away with it in certain sensitive areas from their experience. So these are the proven strategies. Uh, it's not rocket science, but uh, most effective things aren't. And I'll tell you at the very end what I think makes a difference here. So the three key things are to begin by challenging your assumptions. Second, schedule priorities. Don't prioritize a schedule, and I'll explain that. And the third is accountably commit to action. The third is what most of us leave out, and yet that's the most effective step in terms of actually having a long-term enduring career. Uh, so one of the first things is to challenge assumptions. And again, you can read this list. You can decide which ones on this list you identify with. If I don't do it, nobody will. How can we possibly turn people away, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I can tell you that the solution needs to be a systems solution. If you have a mission station where one person decides to set limits and nobody else does, what do you think happens? A little bit of tension develops, Right. So it has to be a systems where everybody together decides on how they're going to maintain a health. But part of our assumptions, and I think our, our, our plenary speaker was very helpful in pointing that out, is you know, who really is it that's getting admired for what we do as medical missions? If we're the ones that admired, something's missing. And yet often in medicine, that's what we are taught to build that sense of power and strength 
ability, you know, the authority, decision-making. Uh, but if the consequence is that people say, what a wonderful Doc Richardson is, something's the matter. So here's a quote from a medical missionary. What, what do you do when there's so many things to do, not enough people to do them? No way to prioritize because everything's a priority. No win situation can lead to quick burnout. Because of high ministry responsibilities on the field, there's no time for rest, renewal, recreation, much less proactive staying in shape or having quality time with the family. This paragraph summarizes your future life as medical missionaries unless you do something different than many people have previously. So the first thing, the first major strategy is schedule priorities. Now, it sounds simple. It's not that easy to do. Uh, if we keep our lists, we all have lists, and we try every day to deal with the list and decide what's going to happen, what do you think falls off the list most commonly? Often the most important health benefit relationships. So the counsel is to schedule priorities, not prioritize your schedule. What's most important? Number one priority for us. Love God motivationally, emotionally, physically, and cognitively. In Matthew, the 22nd chapter, when Jesus was asked, remember, what are the greatest commandments? The very first one was love, not perform for, not achieve for, not be admired for, but was love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Motivationally, emotionally, physically, and cognitively. So what does this have to do with emotional and mental health? Well, a few simple examples. You've all heard a lot of this. Most of the studies that have been done have to do with religion, not with faith and a relationship with Christ. But even those studies of religion show that there's definite health benefit from being active in whatever your religious preference activity is. Uh, all these studies, on and on and on. One study basically said that uh, if, you, if you are active in your religious practice, you, it may be the same as abstaining from cigarette smoking. That's a pretty big risk factor thing. However, what's probably much more important than religious practice is this number one action. Schedule relationship with God. It's the best thing we can do. And the, the question is, is our relationship with God primarily one of a discipline, which is not a bad thing? And has a discipline become something that is not alive in a relationship? Uh, got to spend time. Got to talk with him in prayer. Got to listen to him. Meditate on his word. The step that often we leave out when we're in our morning devotions is the uh, asking the spirit to, to show us what we need to confess and confess that uh, so that we can have forgiveness and reconciliation and experience the freshness, Acts 3.19, that comes with forgiveness. The relationship, not necessarily the activity, is the first thing to schedule. 
Good biblical example, Daniel. I won't spend much time on Daniel because I want us to have time to talk for you to talk. But basically, Daniel, as you remember, he was in a cross-cultural setting, a fairly new person with significant responsibility who would not give up his time with God. Jesus is another example. He prioritized his time with the Father. How can we presume that we don't need to do that? So that one is sort of a, quote, no-brainer. The, the main issue is, do we do it out of a rigid discipline, or do we do it out of a relationship? And I suggest that the most important part is out of a relationship. Now, there are times of drought spiritually when the discipline is what gets us through. No question about that. But if the drought goes on forever, often the issue is, something we need to work out with the Lord in a personal relationship. Second most important thing to do to avoid burnout is love your neighbor as yourself. Again, Jesus gave that as the second most important commandment. Uh, it's especially important for cross-cultural medical workers because how will someone know we're a believer? To some degree by what we say, but mostly by what we do. And how we do it. Uh, I've been called at times to, for kind of urgent intervention things. A lot of people at this mental health and missions conference that's coming up in a couple of weeks have done that. It's not uncommon for a mission group to start to go down in flames because of conflict, not not able to manage each other. Uh, what do you think the consequence of that is for? the church in that community. It's terrible because the witness is our work is more important than how we care for each other. And that's a witness that is okay for Médecins Sans Frontières. It's okay for secular outfits, but it's not okay for us. Uh, and unless we pay, make a priority, this kind of working together, uh, I believe, and I've seen it over and over and over in a lot of medical mission settings, the work may succeed, but the mission may not. And I think you know what I mean. Now, I don't have to convince you your social system is one of the most important factors in maintaining health. And there's a list here. You choose the people who you would include. But... Uh, being a lone ranger is not likely to be a, a good long-term strategy for succeeding in medical missions. Uh, Daniel, again, had close people that he turned to. They prayed for each other. And in this case, uh, remember their, their, their statement in the fiery furnace? Remember the but if not part of the statement? Their prayer was that they would be faithful. They prayed for God's saving, which he did. But, and this is where our accepting suffering in what we do, they're, they're, the most important phrase, I think, was, but if not, we will still serve the Lord. Um, that's something which I think in our culture of thinking our prayers are answered when things are done the way we want them to be done uh, is really, really mixed up. And messed up. Of course, Jesus prioritized relationships over work all the time. 
there's rare, rare examples you could find of him focusing on getting something done rather than attending to the needs of the people. So, schedule time with important people. And again, it has to do with actually scheduling it. Uh, put it in your calendar. Put it on your, uh, your iPod, iPad calendar, whatever it is. If you don't schedule the time as a medical missionary, it won't happen. Or it'll happen with the leftovers. And everybody suffers when that's what you do. Spend time, as with the Lord, spend time talking with them, listening to them, seeking forgiveness and reconciliation. Uh, Linda and I had a chance uh, not long ago to to present at a conference in uh, East Asia for people, Christian people who are wanting to become more effective counselors in their churches. And uh, we were asked to talk about marriage because we've been married 45 years and somebody supposes that means we're expert. I said, doesn't mean we're expert. But the fact is that as we were reviewing and preparing for that, it became clear to us that some of these things we need to continue to exercise in our marriage. And I, I think... It's easy if a marriage is solid and sound and is going well to take it for granted. And it's important not to do that. Number three, again, not rocket science. And I'm going to get to the the, the hardest, easiest part in a minute. Schedule time for yourself. Uh, Previous generation, this would not have sold at all. The generation of most people in here, most of you know this and have accepted this, that this is an important part of being healthy. But as a medical dental practitioner, if you don't schedule it, it won't happen. I still remember this when I was filling in at this hospital. One of the surgeons there was, I mean, I was a runner, but he was a runner. And we would, he would get up before dawn, and he, he, he could run in the dark, so I ran behind him to see where we were going. But he, that was something that he was going to do every day because he knew if he didn't, four months from now, he probably would not be able to function. Schedule taking care of yourself. Don't have it be an afterthought. Uh, schedule thinking correctly about yourself, uh, especially when you fail, which you will in medical missions, if failure is not succeeding in beating sickness and death. Guaranteed. 100%, 100% mortality in the human race still. So sooner or later, you will not succeed. Uh, so don't have that be the measure of success. Um, again, examples of, uh, of taking care of yourself physically. There are lots of those in Scripture. Eating, getting rest, exercising. Uh, your generation is much better at eating well than my generation was. Uh, but there's plenty of biblical support for appropriate healthy eating. Uh, getting rest, something we don't we talk about spiritually, Sabbathing, but we don't necessarily talk about Sabbathing all of us, emotionally, mentally, physically. Uh, and with, and the original Sabbath wasn't just a spiritual Sabbath. So, what do eating, rest, and exercise have to do with mental health? Most of you of the later generation 
have been taught this in medical school. My generation wasn't. That if you want to succeed in managing not to have high blood pressure, coronary disease, and strokes, you need to have these priorities in your life. Meaningful faith, close relationship, satisfying marriage, exercise and sleep, leisure, appropriate self-esteem. High self-esteem that's empty is useless. Self-esteem that comes from what God says about us and who we are is what's needed. And then optimism. Uh, The reality of Easter is something that it's easy to forget when you're elbow deep in alligators. But Easter is the primary reality that we need to attend to. So you're saying, so what's new? I say nothing. The question is, just do it. I can stop here and I'm done. But the question is, how do I just do it, right? For thousands of years, people have known these things. The problem is in doing them. In fact, Jesus' challenge uh, to the expert in the law was go and do it. It wasn't go think about it, go get better theology, go get your, you know, your emotions straightened out. It was do it. This is the strategy that most North Americans hate and don't want to do. Accountably commit to act. Uh, me be accountable? Are you kidding me? To my church, to my pastor? Well, that's a different topic. Uh, accountable to act on these priorities. And the evidence is, the behavioral medicine evidence for what it's worth, is if a person doesn't accountably commit to act, they will try over and over and over and get a little bit and a little bit and a little bit, but never sustain. You know, you can move from, I'm thinking about taking care of myself I'm going to commit to take care of myself. I begin taking care of myself. But without the accountability built in, it's very, very difficult to sustain long term. So intentionally make a decision to do something about struggles and problems. And if you have a safe place, make a public commitment to do so. Uh, One of the important things about for instance, managing worry behaviorally, for instance. Uh, there's a simple exercise for managing worry that I teach people who have insomnia worry. What you do is you get three by five cards and you write down on separate cards all the stuff that you worry about at night. And during the daytime, this is, this is an aside, during the daytime you go through the stack and you write on the back of that card your plan. I will do this by that day. If I can't do it myself, it's God's pile. Most people keep a huge number of things in their pile that's really God's pile. They have no control over. And what's interesting is writing it down in black and white and doing it moves it from here, where we can't control it, to here, where it actually gets under control. Simple things like a commitment that's real, not a commitment in my head, you know, I'm going to get up and run every morning, etc. A real commitment out loud or on paper to at least one other human being is the way to start changing and keep changing. Find a coach, kind of buddy, find a buddy, find a Skype buddy if you have to, if you're in a place where there's not someone else. 
Someone who is not just a sexual purity accountable person, those are important, but someone who, for whom there will be accountability for. So, Richardson, how are you doing with controlling your weight? Well, not that good, John. I guess I better work on that. Permission to hold me to that. Uh, that is much more valuable than my just repeatedly within myself trying to make a commitment and trying to keep it on my own. So write it down. Make it public to somebody so you're accountable. Find ways to remind yourself. And interestingly enough, in the behavioral world, finding a symbol. Your symbol could be... uh, an action figure of Superman. I don't care what it is. You don't want your action figure to be too discouraging to you. But a symbol that's simple, again, a real-life out-there object that helps you be reminded about this accountability that you've established. Some people, journal writing helps. But for many people to understand how to change this behavior, that is, how to actually accountably commit to act. It requires writing it down, documenting, keeping some sort of a journal. So, you know, humans, most humans, we're very good at deceiving ourselves. And it's not as easy to deceive myself about how well I'm responding to my commitments if I've written them down and I've written down what I've done. Uh, Simple, but For most people, it's the key to making a change in what needs to be done. So, conclusions. Then there's time for your input. Some of you have a lot more experience with this than I do, so we need to talk among ourselves about uh, burnout prevention. But this is the outline, again. Specifically know the sources of challenge. What What are your challenges and what will the challenges be in whatever your calling is in medical missions? And don't uh, try your best when you go. I can say, I shouldn't say don't because it's not possible. Try your best when you go not to be disillusioned. Uh, The image that most of us create about what it's going to be like and the reality, the difference between the reality and our expectation is the most common cause of dissatisfaction and burnout. Don't be pessimistic, but have a realistic expectation of who you are, what you really can do, and what what is going to happen when you get to your place of service. Know the consequences. Uh, Again, as medical people especially, we're pretty good at saying to a patient that they should do this, but that doesn't apply to me. Uh, Or uh, I'm a doctor, so I have to do it. This way, we rationalize that we just we have to work ourselves to death. There are all kinds of self-deceptions that we have that make us think we can avoid the consequences of being human, which doesn't happen. Know some solutions for yourself that are specific. Uh, if you're if you're a reader, if you're a music person, if you take walks and look at the sunrise or sunset, whatever it is that works for you may not be what works for your neighbor. And if everybody's trying to do exactly the same thing, it's not likely to work. Challenge your assumptions. What are the assumptions that you have about what God has called you to do, who you are, and what the expectations are? And most of us operate on false assumptions to a certain degree. 
So challenge them yourself or have somebody else help you. Schedule priorities. Priorities of worship, time, relationship with Jesus, relationship with family, and time for self. And the most important, uh, the one where I see most people look away as I look around the room or roll their eyes or go to sleep is accountably commit to action. That's such a foreign thing to our North American culture that it's really, really hard to do. But I tell you that the evidence based on behavioral medicine, at least, is that's often the key point in doing the things that you need to do to prevent burnout. I'll stop there and take questions and have you discuss things. So, Things I didn't say that you were hoping I would say. By the way, I'll show you my action figure. <laughs> Obviously, I, I become deflated when I look at this. But it can be a, you know, it can say, well, I really should do more weightlifting. And, it, and I should. <laughs> yes. What was the last part of the question? How did the principles of the, the last couple principles that you gave about um, finding time for scheduling time for God, for yourself, for your family, how does that apply to the, the conflict issues that are some of the, the ones that you mentioned at the beginning? Yep. So the question is how do the conflicts that you're going to face or be in What's the interaction between that and some of the principles that I just talked about? Um, I hope some things came to idea for each person here for themselves. But uh, if you don't really believe this is true, then the conflict will, you'll be the loser in the conflict and the system will be the loser as well. For instance, uh, I guess the best example I, I know of is this one I mentioned of a hospital where there was a turnover of surgeons every few months, a turnover of staff, couldn't keep nurses. It was pretty clear that something was the matter because people weren't being healthy and sustained. And this happened to be an African chief medical officer came in, and he said it was a real tough thing because all these expat missionaries thought I'd gone nuts and they call me all kind of names. They pushed back in a hard way. But I said to them, uh, since you have chosen me as your leader, this is what we're going to do so that our hospital can continue to function for a long time effectively. And the first thing he did, he said, we're taking every Thursday afternoon off, no clinics. What about those 300 people? We're taking after, you know, I mean, there's always a question. Now, the result of that huge conflict, he said, was by the end of not many years, one of the surgeons who had been most adamant against his position came to him and said, you know, you saved my career. So sometimes you have to tolerate the conflict in order for the outcome that's needed. If it's not that kind of a conflict, if it's my opinion versus your opinion, then that's where the skills of crucial conversations, there's a whole skill set that can be taught that we can learn about managing those things. And uh, 
even though people will be upset with you if you take care of yourself, they will actually also envy you. And maybe that will be a helpful thing in the long run. You had something specific in mind, though. What more did you have in mind with that question? Yep. These. The first one. That was. Yeah, Dorothy Gish's stuff from the 70s. It turns out that's dropped. That's not at the top of the list for stresses anymore, according to Marjorie Foyle and other research. But confronting others when necessary and uh, other missionaries. Uh, I think that's true of every church I know in this country. It's true of almost every workplace I know in this country. Uh, So it's not unique to that situation. The trouble in those situations, in those days, people were often stuck on a compound with the same six people that they had to interact with for three years. And if a conflict developed, there was nowhere to go to get away from it and so forth. Uh, I think as things have evolved, there's much more ability to have that drop down the list in terms of the major sources of problems. However, uh, conflict management is something that there are skills that can be learned and taught if the system agrees to it. And frankly, in my opinion, if the leader doesn't model that, it's not going to happen. If the leader for a system doesn't model healthy conflict management, healthy relationships, it's not going to happen. And, you know, I've had times when I've been counseling medical missionaries at our conferences when after we talk for an hour or two, I say, so what's what's the conclusion? Obviously, I can't keep working with this guy. Oh, he finally saw it. You know, sometimes the solution is it's not going to work. I'm going to have to go somewhere else. We have some friends who started out in Africa at a hospital where they were blamed for the fact that the hospital didn't make money when it was turned over to the national church. And the church discovered that most of the expense of the hospital was missionary salaries, which was no longer paid. These people were blamed. They went back. They reorganized themselves and had a very successful ministry somewhere else. So sometimes the answer is, nope, this isn't the place for me. Uh, but the, I, you know, one of the reasons we talk about this at this mission leaders conference, conference is because unless there's modeling from the top down, it's very hard for it to work from the bottom up. Bill. Have you mentioned counseling centers for missionaries? I have not. Bill Hoppe, speaking of Counseling Centers for Missionaries, has been working in Chiang Mai for 20, 12 years. Seems like a long time to me. Uh, in fact, Bill has some brochures. If, if one of your interest is in helping missionaries stay healthy emotionally and mentally without them having to be evacuated to the States, talk to Bill. Tumaini in Nairobi and uh, at least... 
Pardon? Olive tree and turkey. Olive tree and turkey. Okay. So if that's something you think will, might be your contribution, talk to Bill. Uh, it turns out, as I said in an earlier talk, most of the people working there are people who are getting gray hair. So there's great opportunities for younger people to consider. But that is, that's a good, good point, Bill. The, the, the fact is that um, if somebody's having a significant struggle to put them on a plane to go home, think about it. They have to explain to their church, have to explain to their family. They have to have all this interruption of things. If they can take a needed holiday for a while to Chiang Mai or go back and forth to Chiang Mai from East Asia for a while and can stay and be restored, much the better for them in their ministry. So. A quick question. Yes. With the uh, Lone Ranger is not a good long-term strategy, um, do you ever find uh, missionaries uh, talk about how they were able to connect with the culture there and that's how they found their support? Or are you talking that, I mean, from experience and knowing other people, that you kind of do need sort of a small bubble of people that's like from the States or yeah. from... Good question. So the question is, is it possible or is one able to find the support they need in the host culture? The answer is yes. There are people I know in whom that's been the solution. Uh, Sometimes it's been the most meaningful solution because they become vulnerable to their peers in the host culture, and that vulnerability breeds openness and discussion and support. that doesn't always happen. Sometimes it's very hard for a host culture person to take on that role. Uh, and so it's very common that, that especially these days when often people's mission, the average mission medical mission career now, I forget, is it four or five years? The average. So if that's the case, the host culture is not going to be the solution. And because of the turnover and the commitments and so forth, uh, it's much more likely the person is going to get the support they need if they either bring it with them or have something built in when they get there. Yes? Oh, me. Okay. Um, I, I want to answer his and then ask my question. Oh, good. Um, when my child, my first child died and I was 22 years old and I lived in rural, isolated Ethiopia, I had no one else I wasn't a Lone Ranger on purpose. There was just nobody else. And the people came to me and sat down in my living room, and they knew exactly what I needed to hear. If I'd been in America, no one would have known. They said, you're still a mother. You're a mother because you had Joy Lynn. She made you a mother, and you will never stop being a mother because you had Joy Lynn. And then I was wondering, am I going to have more children? Is this going to happen to me again? And they would sit in my living room and they would say, you know, you see the three children that we have, but we lost four before we ever started having more that that lived. Um, They were just invaluable. They knew exactly where my heart was and what I needed to hear. Um, And I will never be the same because of those relationships. Um, It was wonderful. My question is, these things that are mentioned here may include some of what I'm going to ask you about, but... There was a period in my own life when there was famine in Ethiopia, 
and there was communism in Ethiopia, and my husband, I had just had baby number five, I had a mentally retarded son who started having seizures, and God led my husband and I to start training marriage counselors in addition to everything else. And I don't know how I got through it. I don't, I, I only know that God was there every day, and he was adequate. When I was done in four years, I was burned out. I would stand in church and sing those old hymns, and I would just fall. And nobody knew what to do. I just needed to be away for a while. But while I was going through it, he took care of everything. It was it was day after day after day. And so protecting that relationship with him turned out to be the most important thing. Yeah. Would you be willing to tell people your name so they can track you down? <laughs> My name is Suzanne Gross. And, uh, Suzanne Gross. Right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for your witness. Yes. Uh, do, do you suggest finding, like if someone's interested in long-term medical missions and finding a place away from where they do ministry where they can go and rest and restore or like a lot of missionaries in that country investing in a place or do people do that? Most of the time, that's what people have to do. If you're around and somebody needs you and they let you know they need you, you're going to have a hard time not responding. So it's much, much, much more common for people to actually vacate their work site. For, you know, some people it's, it has to be, you know, a month out of six if that's what they have to do to survive if their team at the hospital can manage that. Uh, yes, sir, you've got a response or a question. We were in a remote area, my wife was about to help me, and in response to that, she was on call 24 hours a day, and we had small kids. This was eight years ago or so. We would, I would purposely take us to a hotel at least one night every month mm-hmm. so she could get one night, at least one night or yep. and just have a meal, and no, no one's going to knock on the window. Yeah. Uh, so it's yeah intentionality. Sure, it was just one night, but it was one night predictability. I can make it. I can make it to that night. All of us have been there. I can make it to that night if there's a night. Right. So another witness about that being important. And I, I think that there are a lot of larger organizations that have retreat places in a region or a country where people can go to and be cared for. Uh, yes. So a really good question based on reality, and that is when the younger people come into a place where there's senior people who've been there a long time doing it a certain way, uh, what are the chances of changing the culture? Uh, I don't think there's a very predictable 
chance to know what to do. Sometimes uh, it becomes obvious to the senior people. I mean, first of all, it's, well, these wimps, they never learn how to work hard. You know, They think they can only work so many hours. You've heard all those complaints about you. Uh, uh, a few of which I think are valid, but not all of them. Uh, but when that's the attitude, then the, the new person has a few choices. And one choice is to start out setting limits, actually set limits before arriving, define the job. You know, anybody who's done missions know that the description, the job description you get when you go seldom is what you really end up doing. But if there's no job description before you go, you have nothing to fall back on and to appeal to. So I think as, these, as the generations pass the baton, it's going to be important to be able to do that for people to be confident enough to say, this is what I know I need to do to be able to be healthy and to do the work I do well. And to have that in the discussion well before getting on the airplane, if possible. Once you've landed, it really is hard. Now, not all of us are as stubborn as we seem to be. You know, some some people of my generation have just done it so long, we don't know any other way to do it. I mean, that's how you do it. Is you're tired, you just get up and you do it. Uh, and, you know... Some of us are still teachable, so I wouldn't give up on the possibility of having frank discussions about it. And you have to get a little bit of a thick skin because my generation is going to say all those things I just said. And you have to be solid enough in what you believe is true not to have that beat you down too much. Somebody else who's been around a while may have some good answers for her, but any more senior people about how to deal with us. Yeah. Yeah, the comment, which is a good one, is ideally the, the generations learn from each other and grow together closer to each other, which is an ideal. You had a question and then one back here, or comment maybe. So what are your thoughts? I know you said if you don't like the job, you can leave, but it's not working out. But what happens if you get into a new position and your boss is a workaholic and expects you to be one? It's easier to set limits with your colleagues, but with your boss, it's hard to say I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't have a great answer for that. There, the healthiest workaholics don't expect everyone else to be. They know that that's – there's some people who are wired can work all the time, a few. But the ones that are truly healthy know I can't really expect everybody to do this and not look down on them. But if it's not someone who has that insight, you know, again, it's a matter of do I you – know, Yes. That uh, was my um, situation exactly. I, I went into two years um, in, in the hospital in Africa and the – the head surgeon there had been there for 20-something years, and he worked seven days a week. Um, and at the beginning, I kind of had to politely tell him that this is kind of what I 
am going to do, or this is what I'd like to do. I didn't tell him what I'm going to do, but we had a, a discussion and, and we kind of confronted his expectations and mine were different. I let him know that he was still the boss, like I deferred to him, but how I needed to set some limits on certain things. And we had a, a very frank discussion, um, and it, it really worked out well. I mean, it, it may not be the case for everyone, but you are not in charge of what other people think, you know, of what other people expect of you in some regards. But um, as long as you let them know that I'm a, I'm a team player, I want to help this facility, and, and, you know, we're here because we love the Lord, but um, ignoring that problem doesn't make you go away. Okay. Helpful. Well, if time is up. There may be one more question you've been trying, if you or comment, and then we need to stop. Um, it took me about five years working in Africa before I figured out that as the longer you go 24-7, the longer you do that, the farther the mirror becomes damaged to reflect Christ. Absolutely. And at a certain point, you have to stop and say, I'm not reflecting Christ well to this world that I'm trying to help. And when you've lost that point and all you're doing is physically helping people, it's no longer valuable to be there. Um, And if you explain that to the people who are expecting you to come on and are workaholics, that you can't represent Christ well, working like that, and I know people who can't, um, that you, you define what you can do, what you think you can do, and how you can do it. I found that's the only way I could survive. So. Thank you. Very good closing comment. Thanks very much.